Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. For decades around the Bay, before the waterfront was for sipping rosé, it was a working place that made and transported things. And it being the 20th century, many of those processes generated toxic waste. And it being the 20th century, many black and brown people were forced into segregated neighborhoods right alongside those hazards. But now, It's the 21st century, and global warming is already causing sea levels to rise with far more predicted. So what's going to happen when the toxins in the ground that have been leaching down meet the water that's rising? And who will pay to protect communities that have already faced decades of environmental racism? Perhaps the cleanup could be a form of reparations? That's coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. You know, the images that long defined sea level rise were things like the polar bear on melting ice or perhaps waves crashing over a beach house in Miami. But in the formerly or currently industrial communities that ring the Bay Area, there are other problems to consider. Researchers have identified 900 sites containing toxic waste in the state that might be vulnerable to sea level rise as the water pushes around long buried history in the form of toxic chemicals. That's the subject of important new reporting by KQED's Ezra David Romero, one of the excellent reporters on our climate desk. Welcome to the show, Ezra. Hey, thanks for having me. Also joining us to talk about the problem, we've got Ms. Margaret Gordon, who I've been talking with for most of a decade. She's one of the co-founders of the West Oakland Environmental Indicators Project and has been an environmental justice advocate and keeper of the history of West Oakland in town for 30 plus years. So good to have you on, Ms. Margaret. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, too. I'm excited you're on. Uh, we're also joined by Christina Hill, a professor at UC Berkeley and a member of the state of California's Sea Level Rise Task Force. Thank you for joining us, Christina. Sure, it's a pleasure. Ezra, let's start with you. How did you come across this particular issue within the larger complex of your reporting uh, on climate issues? Yeah, I moved to the Bay Area about a year and a half ago, and last November, 
this group called Toxic Tides, there's some UC Berkeley and UCLA professors, came out with this report saying that there's 900 plus toxic sites that ring the bay and the coast of California that could be flooded, inundated with multiple feet of water by mid-century and more than that by the end of the century. And so I thought, let's dive deeper into that and figure out what's happening here in the Bay Area. And I heard from area advocates like Miss Margaret Gordon and um, scientists like Christina Hill, who's also on this call, say that that there's actually more than a thousand right here in the Bay, more than a thousand toxic sites here in the Bay Area that lip that ring the lip of the Bay. And so I wanted to find out two things. I wanted to get to know the people who live in these communities, right? Like we care about the we care about these hazardous sites because there's people that live next to them and it'll also impact the bay itself. And then then we did some data digging to figure out just how many sites there are in these communities. And for example, on the toxic tides map it shows like 12 in West Oakland. But in my research, we found 138 sites that are still active with toxic contaminants in the soil in that community. So it's actually a, a big deal that's going on all around the lip of the bay. Yeah. Mr. Bargan, I remember you showing me this huge book that you had, like a big binder, that had this map with all these different toxic sites in West Oakland. I mean, how did West Oakland, for listeners who aren't familiar with this history, how did it come to be one of these environmental justice communities where there are so many health health hazards so close to people? Okay, if you go back to the 1800s and the beginning of the settlement of West Oakland, um, and also, overall, West Oakland is the oldest area of industrial development in the city of Oakland. It's Mm -hmm. the oldest area. So, So, from the First beginning of the settlement, an industrial revolution came and on into 19 into the 70s, they had been using various types of chemicals and various forms of manufacturing, uh, uh, cleaning solvents, uh, distribution of solvents, uh, fertilizers coming through on the rail, on the rail spurs, the rail line over the years. So when I first how I first had any implication that there was these things happening when the Cypress Freeway fell in 1989. And in the same facility of where I, where the freeway was being replaced, PGE workers was digging a trench uh for uh, uh, digging a trench for electrification or something for for the uh for the contractor. And they were they passed out over over some fumes in the soil mm. overtook them. So mm. that's my first understanding of mm. vinyl chloride and all these other hot spots in uh, uh, West Oakland. And mm. then later on, the, uh, we, uh, it, it took us almost twenty plus years to get that one piece of area to be clean. Get clean and had to be declared a super fun site. So um, that's how that's how I, we learned. That. That's how I learned it, and the community learned that all these yeah. so, uh, toxic soil spots and 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 groundwater had all this contamination. Mm-hmm. Christina Hill from uh, UC Berkeley. 
you know, when we are hearing about these things that are embedded in the ground, these chemicals that, you know, leach down from all these different kinds of facilities, can you explain the science of like as the sea level rises before there's like flooding over the land, what's happening under the surface as the sea level begins to rise, even just by inches? Yeah. And um, a lot of people don't realize when we look at maps, we're pretending that the land is two dimensional, but really the land is three dimensional. It's a volume and the ocean extends below the land. Hard to understand at first, but if you picture it, it's just salt water in the sand that goes underneath the land. And there's freshwater groundwater on top of that. So that's like the ocean's got its toe under a pillow on the couch and it lifts its toe up and the pillow goes up. That's what's going to happen to the freshwater groundwater. The ocean is going to exert more pressure underground as it becomes a greater volume, as it rises. And um, that's going to push freshwater groundwater up through the soil. And I'm not talking about the super deep groundwater that people use for irrigation and drinking water. This is the shallow groundwater that's not confined by any other geologic layers, and it can rise as that pressure from saltwater increases. And so what happens when that groundwater begins to rise up through these soils? Like, does it just become contaminated by whatever is around it? Does it start to flow or move in different directions? Like, what do we know about that? Yeah, it's already flowing. It's flowing towards the bay, and it has a little bit of a tidal up and down Mm -hmm. when you're close to the bay edge. Uh, So it's already dynamic, and it's the elevation of the freshwater groundwater is driven primarily by rain. So when we have periods of rain, you get uh, higher groundwater, Um, although some people think that it's possible that if it doesn't rain at all, the saltwater may just rise faster if there isn't as much freshwater groundwater to kind of press it down. So it's not clear that a drought would help with this problem completely. It may just make the groundwater saltier. But uh, we know that the groundwater rises when it's been raining in the wet season. Mm -hmm. And we know that it rises with extra high tides. Mm -hmm. So it's already dynamic. It mostly flows towards the bay Mm -hmm. or towards a tributary that goes into the bay. So it has a direction already. And when it comes in contact with something in the soil, uh, like an ink stain on a wet piece of fabric, that um, contaminant in the soil can spread Mm. in the groundwater. And will that groundwater come into contact with people or will some, will that dynamic system that you're describing, will it end up bringing more toxins into people's homes or releasing gases, like Miss Margaret was was talking about in, in the digging of this trench. Like, what, what could happen? Yeah, it'll do lots of things. And all of it will happen underground before we ever see it on the surface. Um, so one of the things it will do is um, it will break down uh, petroleum products that are left in the soil, and that could generate a dangerous gas, methane and hydrogen sulfide. And those two gases have explosive potential. So there could be some new risks of a spark causing an explosion in areas that were polluted with petroleum-related products. Um, And then anything that floats on the surface of the groundwater, like benzene, for example, one of the potential uh, petroleum pollutants, that can move on the surface of the groundwater and go into a sewer pipe. 
And what's interesting about that or dangerous really about that is that it has a gas component, benzene. It's a volatile organic compound. Mm -hmm. And those gases can actually travel uphill, unlike the liquid component, which will always go downhill towards the bay or cross a sewer line. So if the gas component gets into a sewer line, it can go into buildings. Mm. And in fact, it can go up the gravel backfill that people put in around utility elements like pipes and electrical conduits. It can actually just travel up the backfill and enter a building through a cracked foundation. But the primary pathway for people to be exposed would probably be um, through that gas coming up a sewer line into a building through cracked plumbing seals, old seals at the base of toilets and other kinds of seals and buildings. Mm-hmm. Ezra, talk to me about timelines here, because, you know, sometimes when we think about the impacts of climate change, we are thinking in decades or, or even longer timescales. What, what are we talking about here? Climate change, there's multiple models out there, right? So when we think and that's based on how much emissions we burn over in currently and into the future. If we keep burning at the moderate level, we could be seeing like multiple feet, like two, three feet by mid-century. And up the, the worst case scenario for the Bay Area is 10.2 feet um, by the end of the century. And the reason I bring that up one up is because when I talked to local climate scientists, especially like the toxic tides scientists, they said we're modeling for that and we're showcasing that on our maps because they don't have faith or hope in like world systems decreasing greenhouse gas emissions, which directly cause climate change, which in turn causes this flooding in these communities and talk basically everything we've just talked about. Mm-hmm. We're talking about rising sea levels and how it will affect some of the Bay Area's most vulnerable communities with KQED climate reporter Ezra David Romero, Christina Hill, a researcher at UC Berkeley, and Miss Margaret Gordon, environmental advocate and one of the founders of the West Oakland Environmental Indicators Project. We would love to hear from you. Do you live in or near a contaminated area? Have you heard about this particular issue? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-678. Eight, six. We're going to talk about Baby Hunters Point. We're going to talk about Marin City. Again, the number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more on this important topic. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how rising sea levels could loose, could move toxins uh, that are already embedded in the ground into new places within the Bay Area's most vulnerable communities. We're joined by Miss Margaret Gordon, an environmental advocate and the co-founder of the West Oakland Environmental Indicators Project. Christina Hill, a researcher at UC Berkeley and KQED climate reporter Ezra David Romero. Miss Margaret, you look really closely and have studied for a long time the different kinds of powers that exist in West Oakland and in the state. Who has the jurisdiction over actually cleaning up these sites to protect these communities? Well, you start with the Department of Toxic Substance and Control, who we, who we have had to interface. Then you have the water, water boards. And then also, those are the two main Mm -hmm. groups, two main agencies. And and also just for asking about identifying, there's no like little flags stuck in the in the soil somewhere (laughs) in the sand. This is where this is where one of these places are. It's no such thing. So you have to you either have to have you have to have a technical person with the background. To and have the maps to walk through where is the areas mm. those where those particular areas are to know that there's something there, and uh, they can do it by uh, software, but there's really no way to identify until there's a you have that type of an engineer or that mm. technical person who's either tested the soil. And then identify what's there. Yeah. And how do you see just kind of the moral case for cleaning up these sites in West Oakland? Well, first of all, why do we have to, because we live in West Oakland, have all these sites? That's the first thing. Why is that our officials, after all these years of understanding the issue, the, 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 impacts of communities like West Suffolk, we still have these problems. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not, it's not a, to me, it's, it's, uh, it's not rocket science, <laughs> but it's a challenge for somebody to be the champion in doing this. The only way we found out about the toxic soils is when they go, uh, there's something going to be built and they, uh, we get a notice from, get a notice from the, uh, environmental Division of Alameda County Public Health, and they will send you a notice saying, "We know that this piece of property has this amount, these types of contaminations." Mm-hmm. Very rarely you get anything from the city, but most my most recent un, uh, engagement is that I've been getting notices from the Alameda County Public Health Department. You know, Ezra, um, 
as we dig into some of these specifics in, in West Oakland, we know that West Oakland is not alone, that, that the structures of segregation forced a whole bunch of different black and brown communities into exactly places with this kind of industrial history and, and hazardous contamination. Um, talk to me a little bit about some of these other places that face some of the same challenges. Yeah, these communities line the entire lip of the bay. Like we have West Oakland. Miss Margaret and I went on a drive around West Oakland to like see some of these sites. And one of them, we just like drove into this north part of West Oakland and it, there was a church, there was like new housing, there was old housing. And this was like an, a toxic, an old toxic site that hasn't been cleaned up is under all of this. Mm-hmm. It just shows how pervasive it is. And it's like in people's lives where kids play. Um, and, Places like Marin City in Marin County, it's a community of around 3,000 people. It's a historically black community because people moved here during World War II to build ships and they never left. Um, Redlining kept people in that community, wouldn't allow them to buy housing outside of the small area. And this is an area that floods routinely and there's like lore about... um, toxics being in, being in the ground there and it's not as well documented as it is in West Oakland and that's partly be, be because this is a black community where people said we have has not been invested in and it goes back to this the roots of racism in that community there's also Bayview Hunters Point in San Francisco where there's a well noted super fun site the navy cleaned ships of atomic bomb waste after they um mm-hmm blew them up out in the ocean and cleaned them there and they buried that contamination in the, in that community. It's been partially cleaned up, but the community there is calling full, full, for a full cleanup. And these are just a couple examples. There's places in Richmond, San Jose, East Palo Alto, Newark, um, San Leandro. Everywhere you look around the bay, there's there are these kinds of sites. Yeah. You know, uh, Christina Hill, when we think about all of this uh, industrial history, a lot of it is you know, the military use as well. Of course, there's an old army base in, uh, in West Oakland. Um, when, what kind of price tag can we put on the mitigation efforts and what it would take to actually go clean these places and not just you know, wait until someone wants to build a new building and then find out that there's a, you know, a plume of chemicals underneath the ground there? Right. That's a really good question. In Richmond, at the site known as the Zeneca site, the University of California was going to build an international campus Mm. at the Richmond Field Station and the Zeneca site. And the price tag that they got for what it was going to cost. Now, this would be paid by the private company that owned the Zeneca site, which you may recognize the name from the people who did the vaccine. AstraZeneca. Yeah. So they're not hurting for money. Um, and the amount of money that it would have cost to clean up the Zeneca site, which is an old chemical factory and has a, you know, a laundry list of world-class toxic chemicals, was $127 million. And then when that deal fell through and the University of California was not going to build an international campus there, uh, the city of Richmond approved an affordable housing development, and they decided to spend an absolute minimum amount of money for a little surgical cleanup that doesn't remove everything and is probably in the tens of millions of dollars. 
Mm. So, uh, so a they, fraction of, of the actual cleanup that should have been done. Yes, and they're putting affordable housing, possibly as many as 4,000 units, on a chemical waste site that hasn't been fully cleaned up. Mm. So to me, on its face, that's kind of crazy. And $127 million is totally worth it to protect the lives of children and you know adults who would live on that site. And Alexis, when you go to that site, um, it's separated from the bay just by a little pond and the bi- a bike trail. And then from that site, you can see um, San Francisco. You can see the Golden Gate Bridge. You can see West Oakland. It and the significance of that spot is it's so close to the bay, and it's already have that those contaminants are already having an impact on the fish in the pond next door. And so if it's already affecting the wildlife in the area, what will it do to people if they live right above it? That's right. If I could just mention, those fish in the mud next to the Zeneca site have had tumors throughout their bodies and are um, have both fe- female and male sexual organs. So they clearly are impacted by the contamination yeah. from that site. You know, Greg in uh, East Palo Alto says, I'm interested in the details of locations, toxins, volumes, depth, etc. Is this government data? Private data? Where can I get this information? And Ezra, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bounce this one to you, but I, I just want to note, Greg, that I, I think this is going to be a more complicated answer than maybe you want it to be. Right. The data is public information, you know, to find out where these contaminated sites are, what's in them. I just went to the Department of Toxic Substances Control and the Water Board's registries, and you can look up where you live, go by the area, it shows you a map, and it'll show you all the sites and you have to like learn the jargon of that of each site, but you can delineate what areas are still active, what they've cleaned up, and what they haven't. So it it's it took me like a few days to do it, but it's possible. At least what they have known. Yeah. Yeah. At least what they have <laughs> yeah. known. Well, um, and there actually is a whole other layer where the counties have uh, data about leaky underground storage tanks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there are two state agencies, and the counties have other data. And I just want to note. Jet that you know there are advocates and you know really historians. It's a lot of time what they end up being like, like Miss Margaret or up in Marin City, Miss you know Terry Harris Green. And why don't we listen in to get a couple more uh, voices from some of these other places? Um, Ezra, do you want to do you want to set us up? We're going to hear some of your reporting on this. Uh, Miss Terry Harris Green, she's a longtime advocate in Marin. Uh, Marin City. She was born and raised uh, in that community. Um, and she's been advocating for decades that cleanup happens, that, that the county protect this community from floodwaters that happen almost every year when a big rainstorm happens. This is a community that's only separated from Richardson Bay by once again by a bike lane in the Highway 101. When big rainstorms happen here, um, Highway 101 floods. And that's the minor issue. What happens to this community is the one way in and out of that community gets cut off and people are trapped. They can't go to the doctor. They can't take their kids to school. They can't pick them up. And to get through it, they have to walk through that, what they believe is contaminated water. So let's hear from that story. We stay swimming. Chinaka Green and her son waded through knee-deep water trying to get home. Just coming from a football game and we stuck in a puddle. She told me the floodwaters mixed with sewage gushing from a utility hole. It freaked me out. We took off everything and put it in the bag and threw it away. And this flooding happens almost every year. And um, 
so far, it's been really hard to get anyone to do anything about it. Miss uh, Miss Terry Harris Green has, you know, got uh, senators to to talk about this issue, but still they are coming up with issues to actually fix this flooding that both climate change in the form of severe storms and sea level rise are predicted to make this issue very worse. This is like a small community that's mm-hmm. like a bowl that just fills with water. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miss Margaret, are you worried about flooding too, just straight up flooding in West Oakland? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because, uh, like I said, West Oakland is the old, is the oldest section of the city. So we have the oldest, uh, oldest uh, infrastructure, gray infrastructure of sewage, water, floods. We do also know that uh, in my 30 years here, when it is extreme rain, we do we our gutters get uh, 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 overflowed, and the whole sections of that particular area of the streets get flooded. Uh, we know also know that when a new building come in, when they build a new development or something, that building gets all new internal uh, mm. uh, sewage systems and all that stuff, and they and they. Uh, tied in or connected to the old stuff. So, and we don't have, we have never had a mapping of what is, what is the, what is the oldest sewage updates need updating and Mm -hmm. then, uh, and also why is that when they build these new development, new developments, is that the developer and the city figure out how not to impact the surrounding community, the surrounding areas, not to have updated sewage systems. Mm-hmm. So, and they have, so also some of that has to do with East Bay mud. I know that homeowners pay a lot more for having these systems put in, but, but this is also a, a short term, medium term planning that we, all these agencies that have to do anything with this need to be at the table. Yeah. And we don't have that. We have, do not have that synergy. Mm-hmm. You know, Ezra, um, you also reported on San Francisco's Bayview Hunters Point neighborhood, uh, which did have some of the, the worst contamination over time. If you go back and read the reports about what was done out there, just throwing toxic waste into, you know, barely lined trenches and things like that. Um, can you introduce us a, a little bit to um, what's happening over there? Yeah, I mean, this community has been advocating for decades. Um, I met a woman named Ariane Harrison. Her mother, Marie Harrison, was a longtime environmental advocate who, you know, went as far as chaining herself to fences and to this to these sites there to show that this is an issue. Um, she passed away in 2019, and Ariane Harrison um, took over for her. Um, Basically, where this community is at is fed up, and they are tired of the city of San Francisco, the Navy, the San Francisco Department of Public Health. They feel like they're not listening to them. And so what they're doing is taking this into their own hands. There are several doctors in the community, Dr. Ahimsa Porter Sumchai, um, that are testing residents for contaminants in their bodies. This is things like uranium um, that cause cancer and things like that. And they're finding these toxics in their bodies. Um, and so they're bringing those this issue up over and over and over, begging 
that the community, that the mayor listen. And so where we're at in this process is the San Francisco the San Francisco civil grand jury created this report in June saying the city is not doing enough to protect the residents of Bayview-Hunters Point. Mm. Mayor London Breed basically said that this report is wrong. And the report authors basically asked for an independent commission to oversee this and for an independent study funded by the city. Both of these were rejected by the city, um, Mayor London Breed, and now the San Francisco Board of Supervisors is taking this up in their Audit and Governance Committee. And over the past few weeks, they've been talking about this, basically um, reprimanding the mayor, saying, like, why are you doing this? Why are you not agreeing with the community and what's happening here? And they're going to come up with their own recommendations, I believe, tomorrow at their at the Board of Supervisors hearing. And so basically we're in this point of tension in the city where we have a mayor who doesn't want to address this or who says the, what the, the status quo is okay and it's working. And you have another governing body and you have residents and doctors saying it's not working. So I think we have a little bit of, of a story I wrote about that um, yeah. with Ariane Harrison if we want to play that. I think this is genius to know that we've been carrying around as much evidence in our bodies, the one place they refuse to look. Ariane Harrison got tested in 2021. She discovered a list of contaminants at levels dangerous for her health. Copper, magnetese, thallium. She says her hair is falling out, her feet feel pins and needles, and her body retains fluid. My thoughts was, if it's in me, it's in somebody else. Miss Margaret, this is also reminding me of some of the work that you've done in West Oakland, generating your own data when the authorities kind of won't won't listen to what you're saying. We have, uh, yes, we have our own technical. We have been over the years because we build an organization for as for a community level to have research and data. So we have worked with researchers extensively over the years who have supported us to, for us to have our own information and also to translate that information to what 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 they are not doing, have not been doing, who's been more supportive so um, uh, over the years. And we have, and just, I mean, just really, this is the only way you will get the information if you have your own support systems. Mm-hmm. You cannot totally rely on the agencies because they have to be educated also and how to how to interact with community number one uh, how to do a community engagement how to do having community driven process so we have to also support our residents residents how to advocate for all these different issues and concerns and mm-hmm. topics and planning and so forth because we cannot we, cannot depend on the government to do it because only just recently, just really recently, when Biden came to office, that he really pushed his envelope about environmental justice and yeah. civil rights. We're going to talk more about that when we come back from the break. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about the risks of rising sea levels, flooding toxic sites, uh, kind of from below, and threatening the Bay Area's most vulnerable communities. We're joined by Miss Margaret Gordon, an environmental advocate and the co-founder of the West Oakland Environmental Indicators Project, Christina Hill, researcher from UC Berkeley, professor there, and KQED climate reporter Ezra David uh, Romero. We'd love to hear from you. Do you live in one of these places or near a contaminated area? And what are some of the things that you're worried about? Have you even heard about this particular risk of rising sea levels, uh, pushing groundwater into toxic plumes? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786 on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. You know, one of our listeners, Sue, writes in to say, you know, uh, instead of talking about the past, who can do something? Who should we write to? What steps can we take as a state? Does anyone know what can be done? Sue, first thing is, I just want to say, the history is really important. The history (laughs) kind of lets you know, in in this particular case, the history tells you where the problems lie. Um, And I want to talk a little bit, um, Ezra, about where the funding could come from, or even like the framework for it in, in your work You've been talking about environmental cleanup as a as a form of reparations. Yeah, this idea came to me because I met with community members like Miss Margaret Gordon, Miss Terry Harris Green, Ariane Harrison, all people, all black women who are climate justice advocates here in the Bay Area who are who all brought this up to me independently. You know, like we are dealing with systemic racist issues in the community, the very nature, the way our communities look are built, disinvested in, not invested in, is because of systemic racism. And so in order to have a future within the climate crisis that's um, thriving, they all talk to me about like a, a climate climate adaptation plans as a form of, of reparations. I think, Miss Margaret, maybe you can talk about this a little bit. I think you're the person who like really sparked this issue for me. Oh uh, well, the reparation issue is that hey, how how long is how long how how long do we have to do, suffer on these different uh, all these different things around environmental justice and civil rights? Myself personally, I participate from from every, many things from the from the White House always locally on these issues on statewide, uh, statewide, <coughs> statewide. Excuse me, and that. We always have to go through these processes. There's nothing immediate emergency to put in place. So now with all these uh, new infrastructure grants and um, coming from the White House and the new civil rights uh, and um, and environmental justice division under US EPA, now maybe we can pressure US EPA to take the, the rim, take the help, take 
be at the lead now to tell the states you have to do this mm-hmm. and tell the local government you have to do this to clean up the, uh, these issues. Um, and that's only, and I think that's also should be considered after that land is cleaned up. It is that is to me a reparation mm-hmm. because we should that land also should that people been living under should be returned back to them, not be back turned back to an owner who could go rebuild something on it. And and all these years that we had to live upon this, and we don't have we don't have mm-hmm. no reciprocity from it. Mm-hmm. So it's yes, a lot of this stuff should be considered reparations for our communities that have to be have to live under these conditions over these years. Yeah. And I just know too, I mean, if you go back in history, particularly in West Oakland, the, the area I know the best, but these were decisions that were made. I mean, you can go back to yeah. sort of planning reports in 1937. And it'll talk about how, you know, that, that black people were going to be segregated on one side of a coming freeway and that the, the allowance of these industrial facilities to stay there was actually part of crowding out uh, that that population. They're trying to trying to get people to leave in this way. Yeah, all around the Bay Area, communities of color like didn't consent to having these things in their communities. Like they didn't say like put a freeway in our community to split up our people. They didn't say you know build an army base in our community. These things happened to them. These were conscious decisions by government, by leaders in their communities to devalue people of color. So that's part of the reparations conversation is like make choices that will value the future of people of color, the future of Californians that live here. And also a disinvestment. We don't get the same level of resources, of economic or small business development like other sections of the city that don't have these industrial sites, Mm -hmm. these old industrial sites. You can do a comparison from where... uh, College Avenue to West Oakland and all the way downtown, there's a big difference mm. in everything. Mm-hmm. All right? Everything because they have devalued, the investment has been devalued and that to come in here because of these industrial sites. Mm. So now it's a fight. It's going. It's, we have a continuously fighting about the who going to be living here also because of the, the lack of the new wave of the Silicon Valley people seeing that land is cheaper here, but they're still coming to build here. And and not and that still has put us at a disadvantage. Also, these new uh, that none of the people uh that have extensive families can't afford to be in these new units that they're building. Because mm, so they're too small. This, yeah. this, yes. But that, but also, who wants to be living up next to a freeway? Why would some? Why would the city allow? Why would the city allow a developer to build a property uh, right up next to the freeway where you know you you have extensive traffic, pollutants, you have the truck traffic also simultaneously going on? So that's one of the issues that also is unclear of why they're still doing these things. Mm-hmm. in communities like West Oakland. Yeah. Uh, Christina Hill, how much time do we have to clean up these sites as we encounter sea level rise? Well, uh, that's an interesting question because it's only a matter of inches in some cases before groundwater could reach new contamination in the soil. 
Mm-hmm. So I think that it could already be happening in some places and that we're not tracking it closely enough to know. Mm-hmm. So I would say that we don't have any time and that we should start tracking it much better and removing the contamination now. And what are some of the most like immediate steps? Well, um, some contamination in the soil is being treated on site. Um, Some of that can be done by injecting things into the soil, but uh, there's not as much tracking of whether that's working as there should be. Mm. Sometimes that's just ideas being thrown at really contaminated places and nobody really knows if it's working. Uh, In other cases, the um, contamination should just be excavated, like the Zeneca site. There was an opportunity to remove that sediment, and it should have been removed. But the region also needs a treatment facility. In Europe, they'll do things like make building blocks out of contaminated sediment, um, and then landfill only the piece that really can't be treated. So we need to start dealing with this on a regional basis and not sending contaminated soil to some other a community that has high environmental burdens, like Kettleman City's landfills. Yeah. Right. That, yeah, that's right. That's I do not. We do not need to be taking our contamination to somebody else who's on the same scale of the economics, mm-hmm. color, and demographics. We don't. We should not be doing that. West yeah. Oakland Environmental Indicators had a project with US EPA to do the cleanup of the AMCO site. That's uh, that was the site where the PG&E workers passed out during the building of the rebuilding of the Cypress Freeway. But simultaneously, we there was a study done and we found out over 150 households, front yards and backyard had lead. Mm-hmm. So during we found out through our our our, our partnership with Region 9 EPA uh, while this while we was in this process, took fishbone and fishbone meal and ground it inside of the soil to deoxidize the lead of these backyards. Now, just like Dr. Hill said, we do need to go back and test and see if that have worked. But that's one of the things that we done as round lead to mm-hmm. be to take a relief of that lead poisoning inside of the uh, of West Oakland. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one of our listeners, Marjorie, writes in to say, thank you, Forum, for hosting this important discussion with Ms. Margaret Gordon and Christina Hill. The speakers know a lot about some of the most toxic Bayshore sites. I wonder if there are potentially toxic sites we don't know about. For example, McLaughlin East Shore State Seashore on the Berkeley waterfront is famously built upon a dump, and there are likely East Bay Regional Park shoreline sites with similar circumstances. Uh, Christina, I'm going to direct this one to you. Uh, Do you know what toxicity is down there under these parks built on dumps, and how can we find out? Well, we need to do more testing. There is very likely to be more contamination than what we've identified so far. And uh, it's all going to come back up to haunt us at this point. So we really should be investigating to see um, what's down in a lot of these places where we know there was industrial or military activity in the past. That sort of issue in Marin City is um, elders in the community have said, you know, there's this these dumping sites in our community that, that haven't been well verified, but people have gotten sick. And so they see this correlation, but there's a lack of interest in testing by government agencies there. And so, once again, there's this tension 
that has its roots in racism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. And testing, the cost of testing has come down over time. We have much better technologies for identifying the wastes, and we should be using those. Mm-hmm. It should be an automatic. You can call somewhere and say, I suspect that there has been dumping here, and somebody would come out and do a test. Yeah. You know, actually, one of our other listeners, Sarah, wrote in to say, I live in Palo Alto near a Superfund site. Actually, almost everybody in that part of Silicon Valley lives near a Superfund site. How can individuals test their soil or air in houses for, for toxins? Christina, I sorry, you, I was going to have you follow up on that one. Yeah, I think it's difficult for an individual to do it, but you can send it to a lab. Um, and I don't know off the top of my head which are the best labs, because then if you identify something, um, a government official could say, well, that's not a good lab. Mm, I see. So you have to look at what labs are being used by the state Department of Toxic Substance Control or the Water Board and make sure that you're testing using a lab that's reputable and that someone who knows the method of collecting samples mm-hmm. came out and did it according to the appropriate method. Um, that's also important. Yeah. I would link up with your, if you're really interested in that, I would link up with your local um, environmental groups. There's, there's groups down there that have been working on that stuff for a very, very long time. Um, let's bring in a caller. Uh, Isabel in Sacramento, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, I just had, well, okay, so I originally had a comment about the effect on uh, nature specifically, but I, after listening to <laughs> everything and waiting, um, I kind of just, this comment kept, another comment kept repeatedly entering my mind, which was more about like the lack of foresight and um, all these mm-hmm. entities that control the conditions and quality of like essentially everything that we come into contact with seem to not be able to understand the idea of foresight or, you know, the concept of, of cause and effect. And it's um, a really good point. That's not even considering consequences on our natural world, which is where my original content mm-hmm. content uh, comment um concerned. I have a friend who works at a college that is located near um, my area and is a landscaper for the college. And um, he's always, ever since he worked there, he's been instructed to not cut any part of a tree or bush that lies within the specified area. Um, And it's closed off from the um, public or people. And um, if in the event that he does do so, under no circumstances, remove those clippings from college property. And with that in mind, um, my friend has worked there for quite some time and uh, says that he's never heard of any plan to, like, clean up this area or to Mm. deal with it. And um, it's just like a lack of, like, you know... (laughs) dealing with the consequences of their actions. And so what, what, what kind of effect does this do, like specifically on like plants and trees that do survive like a contamination period, uh, event? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, it's probably, uh, we may not exactly have the right people on to answer that question, but I do want to pick up something else um, that, that you said, which is sort of where does this coordination or foresight around these things where where should it take place? You know, Miss Margaret, you mentioned earlier that we don't really have like a synergistic system of these different environmental and water and air quality control kind of places that would say like, okay, this is what we need to do with these sites. No, we do not. We have to go for EPA. If we if the if it's been like this here, if the environmental justice people. I have in the past go from one agency at the other agency. Or what we have done as Westland Environmental Entities, we invite each of them into our room and that becomes our meeting 
until we go through a process of saying how we're going to partner with each other. Mm-hmm. But, but you got to be able, you have to we have a lot of due diligence and uh, be very impatient with, <laughs> we want y'all in this room. The one thing I can add, Alexis, on this is that the water board I talked with them about this and they said, They've, they're starting to turn down um, these contaminated sites. Do they do these cleanup plans? They're starting to turn down some of them that haven't considered groundwater groundwater mm. groundwater rise. And so that's something positive, but it's still happening very slowly. Yeah. Well, just yeah, let's dig into that a little bit more, Ezra, just because I thought, I thought this was really interesting. So basically, you've got a developer wants to develop some site. They have to show that they've like cleaned it up so they can sell off the land or whatever. Yeah. Right. They can actually use that as... The, as the hammer, like unless you take this into account, then we're not going to give you the sign off to sell this property, right, Ezra? That's a- yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the example they gave me. There's three, there's four sites, one in West Oakland that they've already done this for. The developer was like, "Hey, I'm, I'm done. I filled the requirements you said to do all these years ago, and now with the new science, the water board is saying actually things have changed. You have to clean it up to a further standard or reevaluate this, and we'll move on from there." Mm-hmm. Um, that's. Oh, go ahead, Christina. That's if I could just mention, the U.S. EPA has, in our region, committed to addressing this new science, and uh, so has the Water Board in our region. Yeah. But DTSC has not yet made that public commitment. What, what's DTSC? That's the Department, Department of Toxic Control. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fairly arbitrary which sites the Water Board manages here in the Bay Area and which sites are managed by that other state agency and their data sets are completely separate. Yeah. Oh, so geez. where's the governor's office in getting some rationality here? And do you think that's something that could happen? Like that there could be, uh, I don't know, some overarching climate resilience like effort a- that- Absolutely. We- I mean, we're in a state that's a leader on climate legislation, yet we can't get our own state agencies to work together on this particular issue and have aligned policies. Yeah. And is that just because it is new science and people hadn't considered this sort of uh, effect? It's not that new. I think it's partly because there's a push for housing Mm. and housing is going on many of these contaminated sites Mm. that nobody wants to get in there and say, well, maybe this housing is a little premature. Mm. So it's a conflict in policy goals, but it needs to be resolved. We've been talking about the risks (laughs) of rising sea levels pushing toxic substances around some of our most vulnerable communities here in the Bay Area. We have been joined by Christina Hill, researcher from UC Berkeley on this topic. Thank you so much, Christina. Sure. Nice to be here. Also been joined by Miss Margaret Gordon, environmental advocate and the co-founder of the West Oakland Environmental Indicators Project. Thank you so much for joining us, Miss Margaret. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. And thank you to KQED climate reporter Ezra David Romero for bringing us this excellent reporting. Thank you so much, Ezra. Hey, thanks for having me and highlighting this. Yeah. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.